Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and we have a really interesting show for you today. It's a little bit different. I am excited to have with me my friend Andy Benson, who is a newly minted DNP. That's a doctor of nursing practice. He's also the chief CRNA here at Johns Hopkins. And I thought that it would be interesting for Andy and me to sit down and talk a little bit about two different things today. Now, I want to say right up front, we are not going to get into any national politics in terms of lobbying or anything like that. This has nothing to do with that. But I thought it'd be interesting to cover two things. One, there are a lot of nurses and SRNAs and CRNAs out there who are listening who I think would probably be interested to hear Andy's story about how he got where he is. And so we'll talk about that a little bit. And then also, we'll talk about how physicians, whether they be residents or attendings, and CRNAs can work together in a collegial way uh, to foster a culture of teamwork because at least at a place like this where we work here at Hopkins, that is the model that is in existence now and is going to be for the foreseeable future. We're going to be working together, and so we need to do it in a way that's going to be conducive for everyone to have uh, an enjoyable, meaningful work life, Uh, and so that's what we'll discuss. And Andy, thank you so much for coming on the show. Great. Thanks, Chet. Thanks for inviting me. I'm really excited to be here and part of this podcast that's um, very popular around the country. Great. So, Andy, let's start really basic because there may be some people out there who are sitting there thinking, what is a CRNA? So just in case, let's just start at the basics. So tell me, what is a CRNA? Right. So a CRNA is a certified registered nurse anesthetist. Now, I know it's kind of a hard word to pronounce, but it's... um, it's a CRNA, and these guys are, or we are, advanced practice providers. We've been trained to give anesthesia. Great. And so now let's talk about how you get there. So do you go straight from college? What, what, how does one become a CRNA? Well, the first thing that you have to do is you have to become a nurse. So you, you have to get your um, bachelor or graduate degree in nursing. Some people, like myself, have a previous degree, but... Um, we get a degree in nursing, and then you obtain your nursing license. Um, then after that, you have a minimum of one year working as an RN in an, in an ICU. And the, usually the average experience of RNs is you know, 2.9 years. Interesting. Okay, so you have to have at least one year, and it has to be in an ICU. It can't be like in an ER or in the floor. Well, it has to be critical care. I think okay. there's a few programs that allow being in the ER, but most... Everyone is in the ICU. Okay. So you have to be critical care nursing, probably ICU, maybe ER, but you have to do at least one year, but you say on average people do two to three. Two to three, correct. Okay. Um, So you do that, and then what do you do next? So after that, um, then you apply for an anesthesia program, and um, it's very, very competitive. Usually there's um, 150 or 200 applicants per school, and there's usually only 20 to 30 spots. So it's very, very competitive. There's about 120 accredited anesthesia programs in the country. Um, 62 of them are approved to award doctorate degrees for entry into practice. Okay. So some of them you come out with a, what is it called? If it's not a doctorate, it's a CRNA degree or is it a master's? It's a master's. It's a master's. So some of them you come out with a master's in 
anesthesia. Is that what they call it? Or it's a master? What's it? A master's Master's in nursing. A master's in nursing uh, with a specialty in anesthesia, I guess. And then the other would be a doctorate in nursing, um, which is what you did, but you did it after CRNA school. Correct. Gotcha. All right. So so you do CRNA school. And how long is CRNA school? CRNA school, I mean, it it ranges. It can be some programs are 24 months, others are 36. But I think we're transitioning to... Um, usually it averages around three years. Okay, so a three-year program. Let's back up a second because there may be some nurses out there who are thinking, yep, this is what I want to do. What makes someone, you said those are competitive spots, what makes someone a good candidate? I mean, you're not in admissions for these schools, but you know, you got in and certainly you know people who, who are getting in. What makes someone an attractive candidate? Obviously, everyone's coming from an ICU nursing background, so they've got that are more years attractive? Are there certain pre-CRNA school courses people take? What would make someone more likely to get one of those spots? Well, I think it has to do with their ICU experience. Obviously, I don't think it gives you any more advantage to have 10 years versus two years. But I do think that they look for your leadership ability. Um, they look for the interest in the profession. Like, do you know what a CRNA is? Do you know... Um, you know about the profession and really kind of what you're getting into. Do you shadow? Have you shadowed in the OR? Um, I think those are all important things to do to get into school. Okay. So, you know, maybe reaching out if you're a nurse and you're thinking about this to some anesthesiologists who may be in your hospital, see if you can shadow them, maybe get a letter from one of them. Um, certainly those are things it sounds like that would make you competitive. What about, are there any required courses you have to take? Uh, you know, obviously you've already done your nursing degree, but are there any other courses you have to take? Um, not really pre-courses. You'll take, again, once you get accepted, you know, the pathophysiology, the pharmacology, all of that stuff. Now, I do know there are some people who start those courses before they get into a program to be more competitive, but I don't think it's necessarily, or I don't think you have to do it necessarily to get in. Okay. Now, you said we're somewhere between two and three years, maybe transitioning more to three years. Is it, uh, what's the breakdown? So is there some classroom component and then some clinical component? Is there any research component? What's it, what, what does it consist of? Right. So the CRNA programming is very rigorous. It's a lot of studying. Um, some programs are front-loaded didactically. Others are kind of a blend of that. But usually in the first several months, you're, you're learning, um, in the, you're in the classroom learning. And um, you go through pathophysiology, physiology, um, pharmacology, and all the um, patient characteristics and different anesthesias, anesthetics that you're going to be giving. Um, And then you start your clinical rotations. So in my program, we started clinical three days a week, and then each semester kind of built on that. So then by the end, we were doing clinical four or five days a week. Okay. And then you do that for anywhere from, I guess, one and a half to Two and a half years. Right. Okay. And then what about research? Is there any, especially the ones that are it, where you graduate with a DNP, does, mm-hmm. is there a research component? Um, not necessarily a research component, but a component of quality, patient quality and safety. Um, there's a lot of practice guidelines. Um, more, it's, DNP is more of a practice um, doctorate. Okay. So you're doing a little bit more work, maybe also, as you said, focusing on some quality and safety projects. Correct. Okay. Um, good. So well, let's talk about you a little bit. So um, what was your path? You obviously were an ICU nurse first, since that's required. And then what made you decide to leave ICU nursing to go and become a CRNA? Right. Well, I'll back up just a little bit. So I grew up in Montana. My mom is a nurse in rural Montana. And so I spent, I don't know, days after school, you know, at the at the clinic. She was a nurse in a family practice clinic. And mm-hmm. so it kind of piqued my interest to 
you know, go into the medical field. I wasn't quite set on going into nursing because I didn't really like the type of nursing that she was doing. But um, I spent a lot of time at the clinic. So my first degree um, was a, I have a major in biology and a uh, minor in chemistry. And I was thinking that, you know, that would get me into, you know, the healthcare field. And so I actually ended up during college was doing some research and, but then I decided like, oh, I don't really want to go on to medical school. And so I did some patient um, pharmacology research on drug trials and stuff in, in Seattle. And then I'm, then it dawned on me like, oh, I really like this nursing thing. So um, I came to the nursing school at Johns Hopkins and they had an accelerated program for those who already have a previous degree. Okay. So I did my um, BSN in 13 months. Okay. Great. So you got your nursing degree, and then did you go straight to the ICU, or did you work elsewhere first? No, my first job was here in the CCU. Okay. Um, it was kind of a split unit of CCU on one side and the step down on the other. Okay. Um, so I was there three years, and then I decided to go up to Mass General, so I was in their CCU for a year, and then I applied to um, CRNA school. And did you, was that, you know, at what point along the way, did you know kind of early in your nursing uh, career that you wanted to be a CRNA, or did that come later? So I knew I always wanted to do advanced practice, some type of advanced practice nursing. Um, but I hadn't really decided if I wanted to do a nurse practitioner or do more of the CRNA. Interesting, my neighbor in Montana was a CRNA growing up. So perhaps she planted that seed. Okay. So it was in your head maybe a little bit. You definitely wanted to do advanced practice, maybe even CRNA since you had that neighbor. And then was it um, – did you think, okay, I'm going to do three years, or that's just kind of how it turned out or – how did you end up? I think it just kind of turned out that way. I practiced, or I shadowed actually a lot of CRNAs, and some of those CRNAs had been practicing for 30 years, and it dawned on me that they all really loved their job even after all those years. So that um, that triggered something. I'm like, oh, this is interesting. I need to look into this more. And then the more I looked into it, I thought like, oh, I do really like the chemistry. There's a lot of physics involved in, in anesthesia, and so it just kind of fits. It fit perfectly with my education background. Great. So you left nursing and you went to CRNA school and you did a two-year program? Um, I was at Duke and it was 28 months, 28 so two months. and a half, yeah. Okay. And then uh, you graduated and then um, – now let me ask you, when you are doing your rotations, do you does everybody do the same rotations or do you, you know, subspecialize at all? Do you decide, okay, I'm going to, you know, focus on peds or uh, adult or, you know, whatever or no? Is it Does everybody do the same stuff? Everyone does the same stuff. I mean there's – the Council on Accreditation has a, the certain number of cases that you have to um, do be, to, to graduate. And so we did, you know, we we're trained for OB, cardiac, neuro, we we're trained for it all. Okay. And is there any sort of, uh, you know, final exam or board exam or anything like that you have to take? Yeah, there's a, there's a board exam at the very end after you graduate. Okay. And do you have to pass that in order to practice or? Definitely. Okay. All right. So then you were a, a CRNA, and were you here at Hopkins right from the get-go, or when did you come here? Yep. Um, after I left Duke, I wanted to come back to Baltimore. I really was missing Hopkins, so um, this has been my first job. Great. And you've been here about eight or nine years? Correct. All right. Now, at some point, obviously, you became the chief CRNA here. So, you know, there may be CRNAs out there listening who are interested in hearing how did that come about? Did you decide at some point you were interested in a more administrative role, and how did you pursue that? What led you to become the chief CRNA here? Right. So I guess I've thinking back, I never set out thinking that I was going to be a chief CRNA at some point in my career. Um, I think sometimes 
I mean, in my past, I've always been a leader. Um, and so it just kind of happened. There was opportunities that came up first with they created the lead CRNA job. So under the chief, there, there are six leads, and each has a work group. Because at Hopkins, we, are, we have so many CRNAs. And so that was my first um, experience with you know, management. So I stepped into that position and I, I really liked it. And then, um, you know, years later just progressed and I became the assistant and then the interim, um, chief CRNA. And then last year I was, um, given this opportunity to be the chief. Well, that's great. Congratulations. And I know you've done a great job. Um, now the other thing you decided to do was to pursue your doctorate in nurse, uh, nursing practice, which was not something that was part of your CRNA school. Um, what led you to decide to do that? Right. Well, I mean, nationally in 2022, all the programs are going to convert to DNP. Okay. And, um, you know, right, there's, I think there's 62 programs now that are, you know, are already awarding the DNP. So I knew that if I wanted to continue to be management that I, you know, probably needed to get my DNP. Um, and then things kind of just all aligned. There was a great project here at Hopkins. There was a program at Rush University that um, focused on systems leadership, so kind of fit right into my career path. And so I jumped in with both feet and, and went for it. Great. Now, is there um, – it sounds like it's not going to be an issue for people in the future. They're all going to be part of programs that require the DNP. But in terms of – you're then becoming the chief CRNA. Do you do you do less clinical time now because you have obviously this administrative role too? Um, so it's a mix. I mean, I think it's very important that I still be down in the OR. And in fact, you know, my passion is down in the OR. So I spend about sixty percent of my my week down there. Okay. And then the other forty percent plus some is you know up in the office doing administrative things. Okay. Now I know, you know, we have to be cautious here because anybody could be listening, including our, our department chair, but I'm just curious, you know, is it thinking back now, do you think that's a nice balance? Would you recommend this path of, uh, you know, someone who's maybe interested in leadership and an administrative uh, role or do you miss that 40% you used to spend in the OR? No, I think it's a good balance. I mean, some weeks is very stressful because, you know, issues will come up and you just don't have time to answer all the emails or stuff. But, you know, once I'm in the OR, I really, you know, I don't, I don't answer any emails and I just really focus on the patient. But there's all, you know, there's never enough time in the week to get everything done. So it's, uh, I'm learning that work-life balance. Right. And I would imagine like any leadership job, you've got those six CRNA leads that work for you, work with you, and that's probably key. Having good people in those positions can make or break your your whole life, right? Exactly. And I have a great management team, so I'm very thankful for that. Great. All right. Fantastic. So if you had to say, you know, what's the biggest challenge that you face as as a chief CRNA? I think just keeping everyone happy. <laughs> there's, uh, you know, once in a while there's always like conflict, and we're going to talk about that in a little bit. But you know, conflict, putting out fires. Um, I have a big staff of a hundred CRNAs, so there's lots going on, and um, my big, biggest challenge is just being visible and being present to you know my team. Yeah, I, I hear that. So, Andy, let me ask you: Do CRNAs? Once they're done and in, uh, with school and they're in practice, do they specialize? Do they have like one type of anesthesia that they do, or do they remain generalists? Yeah, they remain generalists. There's really no um, specialization. So once you graduate from your anesthesia program, you're credentialed to give all types of anesthesia, whether it's cardiac, OB, you can do regional stuff. 
Now, I, you know, I always tell all the new grads, it's like there's no perfect job out there. So you kind of have to pick and see what your interest is. You know, if you like doing regional, then you want to go somewhere that you're doing regional. But the idea of a CRNA is to be able to do all the cases, be, um, a re- you know, be an expert at, at um, all the different types of anesthesia. Great. All right. And so you may kind of spend more time in one area if you like it, and your program or your department is okay with that. But in general... Um, you are able to and probably expected to do a wide variety of right. things. So people practice where they want to practice. So if a CRNA is interested in pediatrics, they're going to gravitate towards peds and you know really specialize in that or just work in that. But really, um, everyone should be credentialed to do everything. Great. Great, Andy. So let me ask you, if there are nurses out there listening who are considering going to CRNA school, we've talked a little bit about some of the stuff, but I just want to give you an opportunity if there's anything else you would say in terms of advice for them. Sure. I mean, if they're really, if they're interested and they want to do it, one, they got to really kind of self-explore and make sure that that's their passion, you Mm -hmm. know, because it's a lot of work. It's a lot of hours studying. It's a huge commitment. So they really need to, you know, they really want to know that that's what they want to do. Um, second, you know, there's a lot of people out there who are, are who need to sh- you know, who would be willing to let you shadow, talk to the CRNAs, ask them about their profession, you know, get in there and actually see what they're doing because, and a lot of and a lot of CRNAs are willing to do that. Yeah, fantastic. All right, so now let's pivot a little bit, and as I said, I want to talk about kind of, given that at least at a place like this, we're all working together, and in my experience, and I, I think you'd agree, Andy, the real key to working together well is understanding, is realizing that, you know, the person you're working with is a person just like you. You could sit down and have a conversation just like you and I are having a conversation right now. uh, And that's really what it is. And people in general actually do want to work together well. And so I think it's really doable. And certainly whether we like it or not, though, hopefully we do like it. uh, This is the reality we live in. We're going to be working together. And so I think I want to talk a little bit about that. So tell me, uh, do you have any thoughts uh, on things you would recommend to our residents out there who may be coming in? Uh, they may or may not have even known what a CRNA was before coming in. They probably do um, from having done anesthesia rotations, but haven't had a ton of interaction. What do you think are key points for residents to think about interacting well and successfully with CRNAs during their training? Right. That's a great question. So I think well, we all work, you know, as we work together in a team, and as with any team, your um, team members have a variety of levels of education, experience. And so I think it's almost, it's very basic. You just have to communicate well, you have to respect each other, and it all comes down to that interpersonal relationship. Mm-hmm. I agree. So, you know, let's say... Um, you know, you, I can tell you for sure that sometimes as a resident, uh, you know, let's say you're a CA3, a final year resident, and you're on call and you're supposed to be, you know, quote unquote, the attending. Obviously, there is an attending there, but you're right. supposed to be learning how to be the attending. So you're supposed to be kind of running the show just as an attending would uh, with the backup if you need it. And you may be working with some CRNAs on that call who are your parents' age, right? I mean, you may have gone straight through. You might be less than 30. There might be a 50-year-old CRNA, 55-year-old CRNA, who's been doing this for 30 years, and they've got, you know, way more experience than you've got. Uh, And that's a tough tough situation to be in. You know, as a resident, you want to learn. You want to be that leader you're supposed to be. But at the same time, you know, you want to get along well with people, and and it's a little bit of an intimidating situation. So how can people handle that well? Or how have you seen people handle that in a good way? Right. Well, I think it comes down to 
respect. You know, and it's funny because I've watched some people do a really a good job at it, and other people struggle with it. Mm-hmm. But I think, and it comes down to communication. So if that, you know, that level one or whatever's coming in, it's like, oh, so what, what's the plan? What would you like to do? You know, like ask your team members, what, you know, what's your ideas on this? And then share what you were going to do and see, you know, if it's the same, um, the same plan. Because look, anesthesia, you can skin a cat a million different ways, just mm-hmm. like you can give anesthesia a million different ways. Right. Um, but I think it's, it's the communication part. Yeah. And, you know, I, I tell our residents here uh, that, and we teach actually in our whole department, as you know, a serving leader model. And so I think this is a great example. Whereas if you come in and you try to do the traditional command and control leadership style, right? If you walk into that call and you decide, I'm just going to tell everyone what to do and they better not question me, that is not a successful model of leadership. It turns out it's not a successful model of leadership really under any circumstances, right. certainly not under these circumstances. And I think one of the key things is that people don't realize that a more successful form of leadership, you and I have both been through the serving leader training, mm-hmm. it turns out that it's well shown that a more successful form of leadership is this serving leader style. And we won't go into everything that a serving leader does or means, but the idea is that empowering other people, making people on the team feel like they're part of the team, like they can contribute in a meaningful way, helping them be successful, asking them their opinion, like you said, saying, hey, what do you think we should do? You've been doing this a long time. That is actually a totally legit and very successful form of leadership, but people don't think of it as leadership. It's amazing how that one question changes the whole thing. I mean, you're giving... You're validating and giving value to that CRNA. Right. And so some, but you know, the problem is some people out there, they don't realize it. They think, man, if I say, what do you think we should do? That's giving up leadership. Right. But it's not. The best leaders absolutely make other people feel like they have a central role in the project, right? It's not giving up leadership. So I would urge people out there, I would urge the residents out there, and I tell our residents this, to not walk into these situations thinking that to to keep your ego in in you know intact and to to you know be a good leader you have to walk in and everybody better listen to you that's not what i do as an attending it's not what the best department chairs it's not what the best ceos of companies do they see themselves as somebody who facilitates the success of the entire team by facilitating people's empowerment and membership and feeling a part of that team correct i would agree Great. All right. So uh, that, I think, is really key. I think this is a great example of where that comes into play. All right. So let's say – let's look at a couple scenarios. Let's say that – let's see if we can dig in a little bit. Let's say that you are working with an attending and, you know, you're you're being respectful. You're both being respectful. But let's say that in the end, you know, you – your attending says – that they, they give you, they decide, all right, this is what we, I really want to do here, and you just aren't comfortable with it. You think, uh, you know, I, I know there's a million ways to do this, but that is one, whether it's because you haven't done it before or whether it's because you have done it before and it didn't go well right. or whatever. Right. You think, uh, I just don't want to do it. How, what's a, how would you recommend to CRNAs that they handle that? Well, I think you have to take the approach of patient safety. You know, what's, what's going to be the best for the patient and what's going to be the best outcome for the patient. Um, and then you really have to have that discussion. I know it's a tough discussion to have. And if two people disagree, then it makes it even harder. But um, I don't know. I mean, you don't want to have too much conflict in it. You know, you kind of have to pick your battles, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that is hard and I don't necessarily have a great answer. I think that, you know, in the end, 
uh, you're going to have to either come to a, a decision on what you're going to do as a team, or I guess in theory you could say I'm just not comfortable doing that. And if they, if the department needed to, they'd have to find someone else to do that case. I mean that's pretty extreme, and I right. don't think I've seen that happen. Right. I don't know if you have, but no. you know, in theory. But I think the reason we haven't seen it is because if you take the approach of saying, look, you know this is why I'm not comfortable with that. Is there anything else we could do? Or would you be willing to do it this way? As opposed to just saying, no, I'm not doing it. Right. Right. There are ways to handle that kind of a conversation in a way that can facilitate compromise and people can come up with a good, good especially if you say something like, oh, well, let's consider this. Let's, you know, what about this? Right. Yeah. Right. Um, and I, you know, again, unless we're talking about a patient safety issue, in which case it probably does need to be, you know, if there's really something going on that you think is putting patients in danger, anybody, whether it's a CRNA, a nurse, a medical student should speak up and should say, I'm so sorry, but I'm not comfortable with this. I think this is dangerous. If you're wrong, no big deal. You know, we can get over that. But we do want people speaking up. In fact, medicine has been a situation where people have have traditionally been afraid to speak up. Um, we're actually doing some interesting work here. Some of our residents are involved in trying to work on ways to facilitate people feeling, feeling comfortable speaking up in the operating room so that they can prevent potential injury to patients. So if we're talking about that, there's no question that whatever your, your role is or your level of training is, if you feel like a patient is in danger, you should speak up and then let, let things get worked out after. Um, if it's just your personal preference, you kind of don't like that, well, maybe you push yourself a little and you try something new right. uh, as long as you feel like it's safe. Right. Yeah, I'd want everyone to feel empowered to, to speak up. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's really key. Um, all right, great. And then, you know, uh, what about on the flip side? Let's say that uh, as an attending, your uh, CRNA who you're working with that day is saying they – you know, hey, this is my plan I was going to do. What do you think? And you are uncomfortable with it. I, I would say it's probably the same thing, right? It's a matter of asking yourself, are you uncomfortable because it's unsafe? In which case, obviously, that needs to be worked out. Or are right. you just uncomfortable because it's a little different than what you were thinking? And then you have to decide, are you okay being a little flexible or not? If you're not, then you have to talk about it and figure out a way that you can both be comfortable moving forward. Right, right. I mean, I think the key the, is compromise. You got to compromise. You got to communicate. Right. You got to be open and flexible to <clears throat> to different ideas, also. Right. And I guess I would say, in general, you know, I wouldn't want to be the attending on a case where my CRNA or my resident, regardless of who I'm working with, is sitting in that room feeling really uncomfortable with the anesthetic that they're providing, right? That isn't going to make me feel comfortable when I'm running back and forth to another room. Uh, I would want to make sure that I've come up with a plan that this person, whether it's a resident or a CRNA, is comfortable carrying out, right? So this isn't just about, you know, kind of catering to someone's whims. This is about making sure that the team functions well. And for the team to function well, you need the whole team to be on board. Right. All right. Good. So we agree. Um, all right, so let's turn to, uh, you know, let me just ask you, when you think about the future, um, and it's always wide open, but is there anything kind of coming down the pike? Do you anticipate any major changes in the way that our anesthesia practice is going to go, either from the CRNA side or just in general? Well, I think that, you know, as medicine evolves, I mean, there's always new techniques, there's always new medications coming out there. Um, I don't know of any in the immediate future, but I do know that, you know, if you look globally, the, the practitioner and the healthcare team is 
is a way of the future. You know, there's way more. There's a lot of like nurse practitioners and PAs and CRNAs. All those advanced practice providers are giving a lot of care, and I think that's going to be the way of the future. Yeah, certainly. You know, there we're not. If anybody's sitting out there saying. Oh, I just want to go back to the days when it was just doctors in the hospital, right? I mean, that's just not going to happen. So whether you think it would be better or not, it doesn't matter because it's not going to happen. So what is going to happen is this, as you say, Andy, this team model is here. It's here to stay. It's probably going to be more prevalent uh, as we move forward. And so I think you and I both agree that the key is making sure that we do this in a way that creates a culture where people are comfortable, people are happy, people like the people they work with, and that includes doctors liking their co-attendings and liking their CRNAs, like everybody liking each other and feeling like they can get along. A culture, as you've said, Andy, of mutual respect and understanding, being willing to compromise, being willing to work with people to come up with a plan that everybody feels good about. Um, you know, In the end, I think there's a lot of uh, unnecessary tension uh, sometimes that just can be ironed out by just sitting and talking to people and realizing we're all on the same team. We all want to take good care of patients. Yeah, the best day in the OR is when you work with an attending that you really like. They respect you. You respect them. The patient does really well. And, you know, even like thank you. I always like to thank my attendees at the end of the day for a great day, and it's nice that they thank me. Right. Perfect way to end the day. Absolutely. And I will take the opportunity then to thank you, Andy, for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure, and I really appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. It's nice. All right. Hopefully that was useful. Let us know what you think at ACRAC.com. That's A-C-C-R-A-C.com. Leave a comment on the show notes so we can all learn from what you have to say. Let us know what your experience has been in a teamwork environment, in an interprofessional environment. What do you think about what we've discussed here? And what, if anything, do you have to add? We're always interested to hear. Of course, on the website, you can also access all of the episodes and leave comments on any of them. You can reach me at ACRAC at ACRAC.com. If you are a fan of the show, please consider going to iTunes and leaving a comment and a rating. It helps others find the show. And if you are interested in helping support the making of the show, please think about going to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show. Even just a dollar or two makes a big difference, and we really appreciate it. All right, that's it for today. Thanks for listening. For the ACRAC Podcast and Andy Benson, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued.